Trans as a prefix also indicates like to pass through, right? To transit. So what I think is interesting and like what I hear you saying in terms of like public clergy, Rachel, that I, I think translates to a lot of different ritualistic communities is this issue of like, how is it that the things that we have done that are so critical to how we make meaning, how do those pass through a digital format without losing that way of making meaning? You are listening to the Down the Wormhole podcast, exploring the strange and fascinating relationship between science and religion. This week, our hosts are Kendra Holtmore, PhD student at Boston University. And my favorite place to get coffee is from my kitchen. Ian Benz, Associate Professor of Elementary Science Education at UNC Charlotte. And my favorite place is more of a category. I really love to go into local coffee shops and you know work and write there and try out those places. Zach Jackson, UCC pastor in Reading, Pennsylvania, and my favorite place to get coffee is the Panera in Exeter because I love those people. And the coffee's okay. Rachel Jackson, rabbi at Agudas Israel Congregation, Hendersonville, North Carolina. And my favorite place to get coffee is nowhere because I don't drink it. But if someone invites me for a coffee, then I will just get a hot chocolate at whatever place that we are going to. Adam Pryor, I teach at Bethany College in Lindsborg, Kansas. I have many favorite places for coffee. It depends on the type of coffee that I would like to drink that day. There are two coffee places in town, and I like them both, and I'm not going to choose between them. So I like both the blacksmith and the white peacock that are here in town. But... (laughs) For fun, I'll say my favorite place to get coffee is Julius Meinl in uh, in Chicago because it's an Austrian coffee house and you can get a Wiener Melange. Mm. <laughs> also, I just wanted to say Wiener Melange mm-hmm. out loud okay. on the podcast. I, I don't I know so. what that means. Yeah, I totally know what that means. Uh, it's, a, it's a what? What does that mean in English? Oh, so it's like this. Uh, it's it's. Um, it has like a, a very specific like cocoa powder mixed in with the frothed milk. But doesn't that mean Wiener? No. Oh, Wiener means Vienna. Oh, so this isn't <laughs> like a, well, wait, does that mean Wiener schnitzel means Vienna schnitzel, schnitzel? sausage something? I bet mm-hmm. it does. I always just assumed it meant like a sausage. Yeah, me no, too. See, language is super We're fun, so isn't it? It means the hot dog place in the triangle building, Wiener Schnitzel. <laughs> Speaking of language, I have a question for Rachel. Yeah. Oh. That I didn't prepare you for. How yeah. How do you spell Hanukkah? <laughs> uh, uh, <laughs> okay. So I had to, I had to get. She's that laughing out. because she doesn't know. Um, <laughs> there, <laughs> take your ordination away. <laughs> there is um, one correct way to spell Hanukkah. Would Would you like to hear it? I would. Okay, Chet Nun Kaf and Hey is how to spell Hanukkah, which are Hebrew letters. For I kind those of that understood that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> other than that. Other than that, there's a question because the chet could sound like right, like chet, but most American speakers don't like the guttural or don't even understand it. And if you've never seen the word written and you see a ch, you might go like Chanaka, like it's Jackie Chan's holiday or something. So a lot of people just drop the c so that you get the h as opposed to the h sound. And then uh, there's a bit of grammar which doubles the the cough at the end so sometimes you might see one k or two and some people just leave out the the last h just for fun so there's there's um only one way to spell hanukkah is that the yep that's a that's it yeah so for those that can't see which is everybody um kendra just held up uh scratch paper with uh, the letter chet on little on it excellent um, radio. i just wanted but, to flex my hebrew to rachel that was amazing wow. that she's was not amazing. impressed <laughs> i'd totally like to impressed. bring us yeah I, i'd um, like to bring us some to back to something that sorry real quick uh, that adam said about mm. wiener schnitzels i wanted to make sure it's clear <laughs> especially since someone who was born and raised in germany 
that Wiener Schnitzel, as you said, Vienna, it is an Austrian dish, um, even though it is consumed in Germany. And you actually, I learned this a couple years ago, you're not allowed to call any schnitzel a Wiener Schnitzel unless it's made out of veal. Most oh. German schnitzels are made out of pork. And so the German ones, a lot of times, would be called Wiener Art because it's actually an Austrian law that a Wiener schnitzel has to be made from veal. Well, that makes sense. Dishes. That, that makes yeah. sense that they can. Yeah. So in Germany, a lot of times when you yeah. see it, it'll say Wiener Art. If it says Wiener schnitzel, you know it's a veal one. If it says Wiener Art, it's pork. I so it's like it uh, champagne that has to be made from the champagne just, just region. Just thinking that. Correct. Although. Sparkling wine. We, the U.S. never officially ratified the Treaty of Versailles, so we can make champagne in California and not break any international law, too. That's right. That's or Kobe beef has to say American Kobe beef as opposed to. But anyway. Yeah. But anyway, what. Uh, I felt like that was an important time. Beyond, okay. no, beyond it all totally those, is. Why, it, why are you asking me about Hanukkah? Because I'm a language nerd and everything goes back to language. Um, it does. Language is one of the ways the that root we of express our, our deepest selves. Mm. So I ask you that because literally Hanukkah means consecration, right? Um, uh, dedication. Dedication. Yeah. That's it, a better translation. It's oh. a uh, celebration of the rededication of the temple after the Maccabean revolt kicked out mm -hmm. those pesky Seleucids. And right. And so I'm just I'm just going to jump in right there. We also use right. So everyone thinks that Hanukkah is like a capital CH. Right. That's for the holiday. But then there's also a Hanukkah Habayit. Like when you move into your home and you want to dedicate your house, you do a ritual called Hanukkah of the house, a dedication mm. of the home. So it's it's not just um, Hanukkah, the holiday, but it's also it's a full concept of dedicating something for a purpose. OK, sorry. Solutions. No, no. What you've done right there is you translated it. What we did at the beginning is we transliterated it. Correct. The transliteration just <laughs> means you're taking uh, you're doing your best to cram a word into a new alphabet without clarifying its meaning in the original language. And it usually there's some confusion because like English doesn't have a guttural letter. So we are left with a CH maybe or an H because we don't know what we're doing. And um, so something is lost, but something is also preserved when you do it that way. Uh, translation is when you try to capture the meaning of it without regard for the original form of it. Like in, in John 1, where we say in the beginning was the word and the word was with God. Uh, word in that sense in English means a certain thing. It comes from the Greek logos, which means a million different things mm -hmm. in, in the first and second centuries. And you could write several books, and they have, just on what that translation actually means. Um, or you can just translate it and let the people figure it out on their own. Uh, it's less confusing. And then a third thing is sometimes we have a brand new concept that arises that we need to just come up with a new word for, like a uh, fatberg. Have you heard of these? No. Fat. Fatbergs. These are enormous floating masses of congealed fat and sanitary products that have been sent down sinks and toilets and that congeal together in sewage systems and block all of it and they're massive and horrifying and if Ew. you google it and i am making not. a really disgusting face don't yeah, google it gross. don't google it don't do that yeah. but i'm googling it oh you should <laughs> totally <laughs> totally <laughs> my, in, my insatiable curiosity just turned off this is a big problem in london there was one in tampa that they just pulled up and it is horrifying you know every time you put some butter or or some grease down the sink and then that combines with the toilet paper and all the things that go down and then they all just congeal together into these icebergs of fat so they call them fatbergs that's a new word ew i'm glad i ate my breakfast like several I'm just hours watching, ago i'm just watching kendra's face and I'm like no i'm good <laughs> i'm no longer curious on that one i have to say i i misspelled it at first i put in fat Borg, like B U R G instead of B E R G. Like a cyborg, but a fat Borg. Well, no, right? Like, but like the difference, like, because Borg would, would be like fat mountain, which makes more sense rather than fat castle. 
uh, which would be like Borg. <laughs> Yeah. Um, like Lindsborg? Well, no, 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 no. Lindsborg was with an O. It's Swedish. Oh. Don't don't screw that oh. up. If like you say Lindsberg or Lindsborg, like it's got an E or a U, they know you're not from here. So it's uh, Lindsborg. In Pennsylvania, we're all about Borgs. Yeah. yeah. It's really yeah. just Star Trek. But I so okay. That is utterly so. disgusting and terrifying. It's like something out of Ghostbusters 2. And it's something that deserved a new word because we didn't have a word for this monstrosity beforehand. This was not a problem in the Roman sewers. <laughs> this is a problem in modern sewers. And uh, so I think that we're doing something similar right now as a society with our online religious presence. And by that, I do not mean the Fatbergs. Thanks. Just to clarify, <laughs> um, in my experience, and as a religious leader, I think that we are craving something familiar uh, those sort of familiar mm. comforting rituals of religion that we've adapted over the past thousands of years uh, but we've been met with limitations that have stopped us and uh, like most of our rituals in in religion are communal rituals we have a couple of individual rituals you know you, you can look to the uh, to the monastics and the mystics and find some things that you can do alone and in quiet but most of our rituals are communal and that's kind of the power of religion is when when the world falls apart you can run to the religious centers and you will find roots there and and deeply rooted rituals that have, have comfort and and peace in difficult times so this is such a unique challenge for people like us who are trying to create ritual and translate ritual and transliterate ritual in some in some ways for this digital era and so as we begin this new series on our digital presence i wanted to just take some time to name that to take apart a little bit what we're doing and why we're doing it and why some of it works and why some of it feels hollow and empty because I think sometimes we're transliterating our rituals, like instead of holding prayer vigils where we all get together and light candles and hold hands, we're trying to do that over Zoom. And Zoom makes you feel lonely together because it's just a constant reminder that you're alone in your room with headphones on. Or when we try to do congregational singing alone in our houses to a YouTube video is... Mm -hmm is at, at once it remembers the form that was comfortable, but it also, it emphasizes why it's different. And I don't know, a little lesson. It's like powdered milk. You know, you know, it's the, <laughs> it's the thing. It's, it, it's, it's a memory of the thing. It's an echo of the real thing, but it's not the thing. Um, and I think sometimes we're translating our rituals and trying to bring out the meaning of them in new forms. I think about the times that we've done communion. Um, I know some pastors who have sent prepackaged communion kits to all of their members, oh. like these little lunchable communions that are all prepackaged and then they're all prayed over individually and everyone can take the same thing at the same time with that familiar taste and all of that. And that's just a lot of work and money. And so I invited people to find, you know, if you have bread and wine, go for it. But if you, whatever you have around. So go find something to eat and something to drink and consecrate those items. And then send me pictures because this has been one of the most life-giving bits to me is to see people. Um, somebody will have some fancy goblet with wine and some artisan bread that they cooked, but then somebody else will send me a picture of a cup of coffee and an Oreo. And... Mm. Uh, somebody had sent me a picture of Ritz crackers and they had put spray cheese on it. And <laughs> I, there are certainly listeners out there who are just in horror at the idea of spray cheese on the body of Christ. But <laughs> I'm not sure Jesus minds. Uh, <laughs> But we've taken the 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 meaning of the ritual and we've translated it into something else. Uh, and 
that's just one example of that. Um, and I think sometimes we're forced to create a new ritual. Um, and, you know, let's be honest, we're, this is a crisis time. And so none of us are really all that full of energy and creativity right now. We're, we're just scraping the bottom for meaning. So it's okay if we're not creating beautiful new rituals. But I see videos of people in these cities singing out, out their windows to each other you know, choruses of amazing grace in these crowded cities. And that to me feels like a new sort of ritual. One of the rituals that we in Judaism, most of us lost was the communal Passover Seder meal, right? Mm. Hugely ritualistic or just even having everything symbolic on the Seder plate. Um, and some of those things include traditional Seder plates have horseradish, romaine lettuce, a shank bone and uh, matzah. <clears throat> and it has to be kosher for Passover matzah. And Passover this year was April 8th was the first night. And as a community, we would have been together on, for most of us, April 9th. Now, I did not get to the grocery store. I live in an area where there are not that many Jews and therefore not that much Jewish food. And mm -hmm. I did not get to the grocery store anywhere near in time to get the stuff. So there was nothing left. Right there, there were no shank bones. There was no horseradish. There wasn't even kosher for Passover matzah. Nothing. And so we said, okay, well, what are we going to do? And um, a dear colleague of mine, Rabbi Marina Jurgen, uh, who's currently in Texas, she had this idea, this creativity of, well, what, are this, what is the purpose of this? So I'm just going to pick out one, and that was the shank bone. Right? What is the purpose of a shank bone on a Seder plate? It's the idea of God's outstretched arm right? A really anthropomorphic concept of God um, and God's presence, right? Because the shank bone is for the sacrifice that was made, but we no longer do sacrifices, animal sacrifices, because we don't have a temple. And it was also commemorating the idea of uh, lamb's blood on the, on the doorpost of your house for the 10th plague, all that stuff. But really using this idea and saying, okay, so if that's the symbolic meaning of, of um, the shank bone, then we're looking then for something that brings us comfort. Hmm. So what can we do? So my son and I, uh, he's like, like I said before, he's just about six. Um, so I, I asked him, I said, okay, so we can't have the shank bone. So what do we have? And this is, this is what I think it means. He's like, so what would you use? He said, a hug. Oh. So instead of a shank bone, we had a hug. Hmm. Um, Oh, and, and then there's this, other, as, as one other sort of like awe, um, there's this other thing that's called chorosit, which is a mixture of nuts, apples, wine, honey. Um, it's supposed to like represent the, the mortar that was used when, when building you know, as slaves in Egypt, but then also the sweetness of freedom. And I said, so what's something sweet that makes you smile? And he said, gummy bears. So instead of chorosit, we had gummy bears. And instead of a shank bone, we had a hug. And to me, that was a translation of our ritual and not a transliteration because we, we could have transliterated it by getting one of, by getting a bone from a chicken that I had in the freezer. That would have mm. been a transliteration, right? Like, okay, so I have a, I have an animal bone, but this felt much more authentic and much more, more real. I would also add that um, this year I, well, just to back up, because this might be confusing for some people to hear. I did grow up Christian, but I did also participate in a Seder this year uh, with one of my Jewish friends who usually um, they would host at their house every year for friends, but they decided this year to do a Zoom Seder mm -hmm. with the same group of friends that they normally uh, would invite yeah. over. And so they did a... Um, socially distant drop-off of many of the supplies that would go on a Seder plate. And so they, but one of the things that um, was missing for all of us 
and everyone sort of improvised was the horseradish, which Mm -hmm. Rachel, you can correct me if I'm saying any of this incorrectly, but a horseradish is on the Seder plate, um, maror. And that that is, um, I think, I think, (laughs) uh, supposed to symbolize the bitterness of slavery. Mm -hmm. And so when you eat that, uh, like horseradishes, if you've ever had that, obviously uh, very bitter. And Chad and I decided to use uh, Dijon mustard instead of mm. horseradish. <laughs> Just, and everybody uh, had like different things in their house that they used. And so we kind of like held up to the screen, like what our version of Moror was for this year's Seder. Um, but it was still the sensory experience that was something similar to bitterness so that we still could all participate in the symbolism of what Maror means regarding yeah. the, the bitterness of slavery as we were, you know, reading through the, the Seder um, packet. Uh, mm-hmm. And so that I thought was a really interesting way for us to collectively still participate in something together, even though we had individual variations. Mm-hmm. And I think this also brings me back to what Zach said several minutes ago about uh, how some people have like individual rituals that they participate in. And what we're talking about now is um, how we're like transliterating these rituals across this virtual format. But I think that uh, even when we are doing like Zoom, FaceTime, virtual formats aside, if you are participating in some kind of ritual on your own, say you're meditating in the middle of your living room on a Saturday morning in silence, there's no one around, or you read tarot cards, or you do anything that doesn't require the presence of other people, you're still building on a tradition that is collective. And what I I think is really key in what we're talking about now, it's not that we are ever really doing our current rituals alone like what's what's missing isn't other people except in a physical sense and so i i think it's important to make that distinction because uh we are like in our our homes without other people but we're participating in these rituals that we wouldn't be doing if we hadn't learned them from other people or if we hadn't been reading sacred texts or if we hadn't been taught to do something a certain way and so there there is uh, something that still has a, a connectedness with other people, even now when we are sitting alone in our living room doing anything. Um, it the the physical piece is what is really missing, and that like embodied emotion of togetherness that you feel when you sing in a large choir or, or something like you don't have that necessarily, although we could talk about whether that is possible because I think it could be. But even if you are like eating Dijon mustard instead of horseradish at a, a Seder dinner, uh, <laughs> you are doing that because you are filling in uh, a symbol, which is something that you didn't just create. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that even the individual variations or the solitude we feel when we are participating in ritual is still something that we are intentionally doing to feel connected. So it does highlight the solitude that we experience, but it's like there's two sides of that coin that I think are really interesting. Um, so fascinating. can I can I ask, because I, I want to make sure I heard you right, Rachel, right? So when you... When we're talking about um, Dijon mustard and gummy bears and hugs, um, <laughs> oh my! Uh, yeah. when, when, <laughs> um, <laughs> so, so when we're when we're talking about these things, you're talking about that as a translation of ritual. Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. I, I can I we step back? For- you- yeah, oh, Ian, you've been we, trying to jump in for a little bit too. No, no, no. It's no, it's about translation versus transliteration, though. And I know you addressed that at the beginning, but let's do that again. Yeah, because I think I we're using, using them all in context. <laughs> so yeah, I think I'm, in the way that I mean it, a transliteration attempts to retain the original form, and sometimes in disregard for the meaning behind it. Whereas a okay. translation attempts to maintain the meaning while 
ignoring the original form. So getting so a chicken bone is a bone. That's the form of it, though okay. a chicken is a whole it's a different meaning behind it. So the transliteration, it seems like if you're trying to do that, just tell me if I'm off on this, that that's trying to focus more on the act of doing it, not the reason for doing something. Am I off I, on that? I think or the meaning is still the same too, though. It just wasn't a pre-established form. Well, I'm not saying you're losing the meaning, but I guess maybe you're trying to do both. You're trying Where's to- Where's the emphasis on it? Because we're limited. We are limited right. right now by what we can do. We can't do our rituals in the full way that we are used to doing them. And so we need to adapt in one way or another. Do we then sacrifice form or, or the intended meaning behind it? Okay. And in, okay. in different traditions, this will be very different. And I'm like, once again, I'm, I'm showing my low church Protestantism here, my Baptist upbringing, mm -hmm. where it's all just a sign and symbol anyway. So you can take whatever elements you want, but if, if one of us here, and I, we don't have any Roman Catholics here with us, but I would, I have had this conversation with some of my Roman Catholic friends and they disagree wholeheartedly that mm -hmm. you can replace um, the consecrated bread with an Oreo or God forbid a cracker with spray cheese on it. And that, that is, is uh, in, in changing the form so much, then you are diminishing the meaning of it. And so they would argue that, um, that I'm ruining the whole piece. Okay. But I think, go, go ahead. ahead. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to ask Zach, in that case, would those friends call the Oreo and coffee communion a transliteration or a translation? Because it seems to me like someone who's very dissatisfied with the extreme change of the form in this case, the Oreo and the coffee, that it wouldn't be either. Well, I would think they would call it a translation, but they'd say you shouldn't translate it. But what is it translated into? Like you I lose guess. the power of it because you tried changing it. Because you changed the form so significantly that you've lost the power of lost the ritual itself. Meaning. And so you should just not do it. I, has the Pope come out and made any kind of statement about taking communion? Have have. Catholic Church has been offering communion. I I haven't looked into this. I mean, I'm a coffee and toast communion person these days, so I think. Well, I'm I know the Episcopal the Church. Right so there was but, when this was all starting with the Episcopal Church. Like we wait, you know, Ian. Sorry, can I just like finish that question to Zach because yeah. it 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 just is like wrapping up that point. Is how would those friends like? I ask that because I'm wondering whether um, someone who's really dissatisfied with the trans transliteration of ritual would even call it a translation or transliteration because a translation to me means that the meaning has changed not that the meaning has disappeared which I think is what someone who's dissatisfied would say is that like Oreo and coffee that doesn't mean anything yeah and yeah. I don't know if that is a translation I think I, I, if I can also jump in sorry Zach that was questions to you I think there's a third option that we're not we're not addressing here which is just don't do it. Right. Right. That that yeah. there's an option of do it to the best of your ability, coffee and Oreos. Do it um, the exact way you did it so everyone gets drop off communion because you actually need that particular wafer. Or don't do it at all because unless you're doing it in the way that you're accustomed to, then nothing is better than the alternatives. Right. That I think I think that we have to keep up that nothing in in terms of some ritual is a is a valid alternative. Right. So that's, that's what I would throw out there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that speaks to like some of the confusion I have about this either or between transliteration and translation. This is not a cut and dry kind of a, kind of an, an example here. Um, I've just, I've just noticed personally that while planning worship and engaging in worship that other people have planned, that we tend to err on one side or the other of maintaining the original form and then just trying to do it online or adapting the form in order to try to maintain the meaning that we were getting from the ritual in the first place. Uh, Adam's going to Adam's trying to, yeah. Yeah, he looks like it. 
don't like this. Uh, do it, do it, do it, do it. I don't. Uh, Should I go get some more snacks? Well, yeah, you probably. Uh, so, all right. So, back to gummy bears. Um, right. Because, uh, again, I it's brilliant and tasty and probably a better form of mortar, frankly, if you melt it down. Um, so, um, true. I'm, I'm, and and this di- distinction between translation and transliteration, right? Because this is, I, I think this is probably where I'm getting hung up on what's going on, right? So I'm thinking about quite literally what happens when you translate versus you transliterate, right? Mm-hmm. So when you translate something, you take a text and put it from one language into another language. You're shifting the sense, right? So that's the way I was, liter- I was literally looking at it that way too. Mm-hmm. Right. And then when you transliterate something, you take the characters of one language and make the best approximation to put them in another, right? So mm-hmm. Hanukkah, right? You don't have a chet. You don't have a nice guttural sound in English. So how do you render that in Latin characters? Well, you can use an H or you can use a CH. Or you can use, you know, if you're like a fancy scholar, like an H with a little dot underneath it. Exactly. Uh, right? So like you have these these sort of options, right? But the sense or the meaning is not in play there, right? The sense of the meaning is fixed. All you're doing is trying to render it in a way that somebody who doesn't recognize Hebrew characters moving right to left can understand it with Latin characters moving left to right so that they can Mm -hmm. recognize it as such, right? It's about recognition. Right. Just like the word shalom would be another example. Yeah. That's probably a better example than Hanukkah. Yeah, yeah, probably. Um, Right. So. So now I'm so now I'm going back to like the plate, right? And mm-hmm. the gummy bears. Mm-hmm. Is the act of choosing gummy bears really a translation? I because I I'm not sure it actually is. And what this is the Oreo it? question all over it. Right, exactly. So what yeah, what this, would you call it? I'd I'd call it a transliteration. Mm. Yeah, Mm-mm. that's what I was. You would call it translate, too. Yeah, not yeah. translation. And I, and I don't mean that in a like a like disparaging sense. Like I think it's an no, important no, no. act of transliteration. But yeah. right, the the fundamental meaning is there. It's being rendered in terms of a set of contexts that are available. Hi, this is Rabbi Jeff Middleman, founding director of Sinai and Synapses. Down the Wormhole came out of our Interfaith Fellowship, but Sinai and Synapses also has projects directed towards Judaism and science. We have an open application for our project Scientists in Synagogues, which would give your community $3,600 to do work on Judaism and science. The deadline is July 23rd, and you can see it at SinaiAndSynapses.org. Thanks very much. Let me ask you, let me say, and, and Zach, you, you brought us into this conversation with language is so very important. Yeah, you got um, us into this mess. Yeah, thanks, man, because I'm um, still confused. Let's take us deeper into this mess. Um, let me bring up one of the Bible verses that I think a lot of people know, and I don't want to go into this in terms of creation or, frankly, or or even what is it saying? I want to look at this verse in terms of our conversation here of translation, transliteration. Okay. Just framing that conversation. Adam, just so the um, viewer, the listeners at home know, Adam's got a really fun smirk on his face. He looks. Yeah. No, no. I, 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 I want to like, just say, I have not let go of the fact that Zach said just a symbol. And that now that he has committed the fundamental sin, it's not blaspheming just. the Holy spirit. It's saying just a symbol. I'm going to like wail on him before the end of the episode. For this. I haven't okay. let it go. It's just simmering deep inside of me. And we'll come. Oh man. Okay. Well, all right. Sorry, Rachel. Carry no, on. It's all I good. guess I'm always a Baptist somewhere deep at heart. It's all good. Um, so the first verse of Genesis, right? I will give it to you in the Hebrew. Sorry, that was two verses. Now, what did I say? Oh. In King James, Genesis 1, right? I know, what is okay. the very opening? <laughs> what is the very opening of the Bible? Right? Either King James Version or what? It, what is it? And a it, long like, time actually, ago in a galaxy in far, beginning. far away. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I just okay. Was like, <laughs> okay. Thank you, Zach. And better, thank you, Kendra. <laughs> so, In the Kendra, beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Okay. From Let the me, head. 
There's no the end. I added that. You can't. You can't have a conversation with you people. No, um, I still think. A long what do you time mean, ago, you people? You <laughs> <laughs> um, the traditional translation, or a traditional translation, when God began, right in the beginning, God created heaven and earth. Kendra, can you give us the next line or no? I'm not putting put on the spot. The earth was formless and void. Yes. Thank you. That's Thank what you. I was going to say. Okay. I got gotcha. you. Let me give you, let me give you a different <laughs> Not Baptist, translation. but still can quote that one particular that, verse. And that's why I chose it, because a lot of people can. Let me give you a different, and this is considered a translation, okay? Because it's not in the Hebrew, <laughs> and it's not in, it's not in Latin characters, just, you know, uh, B-R-E-I-S-I-T, right? You don't know what that word means. It's brishit, but that word doesn't mean anything in English, which is a transliteration. So the translation says, when God began mm-hmm. to create heaven and earth, and the earth was welter and waste and darkness over the deep. That is a completely different kind of translation than in the beginning and formless and void. So to me, the translator is putting their theology, their bias, their complete interpretation of what the text says to give you a whole new meaning. And I no. think that's what the gummy... I, yeah. No, that... Oh, translators no. don't no, no, do no, no, that. No, 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 no. Like, yes, no. they... like. No, they are not giving you a, a sense of exactly what the text is, but they're not. I mean, the the way you're describing it, it sounds like they're they're like constructively adding, and I don't think yes, that's the, they the, are absolutely one hundred percent. They they're, are. They're they're trying to render a sense where there's no sense yeah. that can be rendered. No, so, but, but I if mean, you're... if we're going to sort of accuse so, them of constructivism at that point, fine. But then there's no sort of process of translation that's not simply going to ge- degenerate into completely separate linguistic games. Mm-hmm. I don't think Rachel is. Well, Rachel, do you want to say something? No, I was no, going to defend ahead. you. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, please. <laughs> it's like someone in my corner. Tag your it. <laughs> um, because I, I think that Rachel's right. Like, I, I think every translation is an interpretation. I feel like one of my intro to yes. Bible professors like mm-hmm. quoted that at me a hundred times in college. <laughs> um, but I think that it's also like I don't think that when Rachel says that. Uh, Correct me if I'm wrong, but what she's saying is that uh, the constructivism that goes into a translation is just like uh, an outright attempt to like change the meaning of a a text. I think that happens insofar as it is helpful to articulate the point. And sometimes that does mean a, a change in the meaning that you know, that's why people fight about which translation of the Bible you should use, because they they do sometimes have meanings that are contradictory. But I don't I don't think that that is the primary goal is to like utterly change a text. But I, I think it happened like it's inherent to the process of translation that there will be some kind of transformation. So it's like a both and, I think, somewhere in between uh, of what Rachel and Adam are saying. And so we're trying to do this work to our beloved rituals and trying to hold that tension between proper form and the meaning that we have towards it. And I'll admit that the meaning that I bring to Holy Communion is different than the meaning that my Lutheran brother will bring to the sacrament of Holy Communion. In my upbringing, we would not even have called it a sacrament. We would have called it an ordinance, which is so offensive to you. That's true. <laughs> so much fun. I mean, he's, you could see the smoke coming out of Adam's ears. One time, one of Adam's colleagues, right, said that they could tell it was you because of the depth of your sigh. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. Is that the phrase? I love that phrase. That was one of those sighs right there. That's true. (laughs) I want to bring us back because. um, Sorry. No, no, this is great. We're kind of proving the point that humans are all about making meaning. This is what makes us so. One of the things that makes us so special is we want to make meaning out of everything. And now we're trying to make meaning um, in this situation. One of the ways we make meaning is through the act of ritual. 
and we have established rituals that we love. We, we who are in religious communities have certain ones and we who are people who are not religious also have them. I asked you at the beginning about your favorite coffee shop because coffee is a huge ritual that, mm -hmm. and, and there's a difference in the way that you take that ritual. If I, uh, stop at uh, the drive-through at Panera and get my uh, my coffee and then drive to work. That's not like a ritual to me. If I were to stop my car, get out, go in, order a coffee in a mug and go sit down and drink my coffee. And while I'm doing that, interact with people or read or something like that, that is much more of a ritual to me. It's because it's intentional and it's different and it's not, it's not something I'm doing while I'm doing something else. Um, and this is a, um, a, an important distinction when we're talking about, about ritual, that it is out of the normal way of doing things. I mean, if you watch insects uh, when they want to, to mate and they start doing these really complicated mating rituals, and you're like, why on earth does this butterfly need to do like seven <laughs> circles around this other butterfly and do this weird dance? And why? What is the evolutionary purpose of this in this simple little organism? And, you know, the reality is, is that it's so weird that there can be no mistake between the two butterfly that this is a set apart time. This is a mark that we're doing something different now. So, so Zach, when you go to the drive-through and just pick up your brown water, do you <laughs> do you bastardize the ritual of coffee by making uh, it something so mundane? So you are a black coffee drinker, am I correct? I yeah, am. Okay. I enjoy no, the taste of beans. No sugars, nothing. No, but it, you're you're asking that in the act of oh, of drinking coffee in a different way, right? Have I now ruined it in for every other way? Are and you no. or to to use to use other language, right? Are you blending? Are you blurring? Or rather, are you blurring the line between that which is sacred and that which is profane? The mundane versus the holy. And are you blurring those lines? And can something be both? And if it is both, how do you differentiate? So here is where I think that we are struggling as religious yeah. people is yeah. normally our rituals take place somewhere else. Where you leave your home and you leave the familiar and you go to a place that has been designated as a place of worship. You've gone to this place so many times that your brain now has made that connection. I stepped foot into this building and now I am in worship mode. I don't like when I walk into the kitchen and suddenly I get hungry because I'm used to it. It's very, you know, very Pavlovian and... Mm -hmm. Um, but you have set aside a sacred space so that your brain immediately knows we're in sacred mode now. Now we're all stuck inside. And so mm -hmm. our space that's normally for uh, relaxing, recreation, food, sleep, just all of the normal things are now having to be one thing. And we're doing worship online. And so that that space where you go to on the internet, I'm looking at my computer. This is a thing that I usually use for work or entertainment. And now I have to use it for spiritual ritual. And it's it doesn't translate as well because it's not different enough. And this is this is why I love communion so much. Because what I'm asking people to do is to go find something and bring it to the computer. And in the act of bringing, of having to choose what elements to bring, you have now changed uh, the focus of your mind. So now when you engage with this YouTube video, it's not like you're just watching some YouTube video uh, just for fun. Now it's different. And it triggers something deep within your brain to say, all right, this is different. I need to pay more attention to it. And I think that just that act of doing something different, or maybe even having having a place, like I'll, I'll bring my computer to the back bedroom in this one corner for worship every Sunday morning. And that's the only thing I do over there. And that act of doing something different is, I think, at the heart of creating a new ritual.
we talk about you know the situation we find ourselves in right now with you know the various stay-at-home orders and things because of the pandemic that I have actually found for myself that it seems to have had a very interesting and potentially positive impact on my spiritual journey more so than prior to <laughs> and it's because of the fact that even though I knew it already that I didn't have to be in the sacred space on Sundays to feel uh, a call to worship that I've now, since I've now been forced out of that sacred space, that to continue feeling a spiritual call to worship, I've got to find something different. And it's actually increased the amount of time I worship each week significantly. Hmm. I now have stepped up and I'm one of the lay leaders for a weekly Compline service. And so I do that every, every Thursday or every Tuesday night, you know, I will read and pay attention to things more throughout the week to look for different ways to expand upon that service. One for the people who may be tuning in who I cannot see, but also two for my own spiritual purpose, right? We still will participate by watching on our Facebook channel for our church on Sundays, but then I will also go and look to see, okay, what is the national cathedral service doing today? Or mm -hmm. what is my former rector now Bishop Kevin doing in Delaware and watch that service. So it's actually made it so that I am looking for more spiritual connection than I potentially was before. Hmm. So, and also too, what I think is interesting is, is that shows to me at least seeing people's reactions to not being able to go to church and the and the argument they present that it's a violation of their rights i find very interesting because to me it seems like are, are they holding on to that the only way they can really worship is in that one space and i believe that god would call on us to worship in all spaces does that make sense a total sense total sense now i mean I envy all of you who have moments of silence in your days. <laughs> I have yeah. a lot of Paw Patrol and uh, <laughs> not a whole lot of silence except for a couple hours a day. Um, so for folks like me with ton with loud, small children, it's been more of a struggle to find yeah. any semblance of peace because I have no peace anywhere. And my sacred spaces, my office, my coffee shop, you know, my booth at that Panera is gone. I can't have those places anymore. Um, so when well, I think that will show the distinction between someone who is in a position as a religious leader and someone like myself, who is a lay leader, that 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 right there to me seems like one of the biggest reasons why there's the difference is that. This is the time I see that, you know, while others in my church may have looked to me as a potential lay leader because of the work I've done as a member of vestry and teaching classes, that for me to now lead a worship service, it's given me the opportunity to step up. There was no expectation, I think, from members of my church community that, oh, Ian will step up and be a, re a religious service leader. Hmm. Right. But the expectation was there for our rector and associate rector and deacon. Like that was already pleasant, you know. So for people like you and Rachel, the expectation is already there that you are going to continue to serve as our religious leaders for your particular communities. There was no expectation for me to do that. I, I, if I may, um, and, and I want to pull this into not just religious communities, because what we're really talking about also is just any ritual. I mean, Zach, you mm -hmm. brought us in with coffee. Um, I know that for a lot of uh, a lot of people in my congregation, going to the gym was a very big ritual for them. And that's not just because the gym has the treadmill or the elliptical or something. And it's they can't do it at home. Right? They do, physically, they don't have the stuff. Right. They don't have that's why they got a gym membership. But so many of us, well, you could just, you know, five hundred dollars or a thousand dollars. You could just get an elliptical or get a treadmill and you could have it at your home. But it's different because, like you were saying, that that place. And so for someone who is struggling for 
for wherever that thing is and whatever that one thing is, I think so many of us participate in a lot of rituals, but some rituals hold more emotional or spiritual sway over us than others. So whether that's going to the gym or going to the coffee shop or taking communion or whatever it might be, I think we have to be cognizant that for some people, the I may not understand what it's like to have the conversation over, you know, uh, toast and coffee versus holy water and uh, holy wafer, right? I, that doesn't that doesn't mean anything to me mm. um, because that's never been my ritual. So to me, I'm like, ah, Oreo and coffee sounds pretty good. <laughs> like I can I can transliterate that. No big deal. Um, also, Rachel, holy water and holy wafer. It's see half right <laughs> yeah. we, we use pork in my church community thank you so that was okay, a great so it's, mixture it's, of sacrament though i uh, yeah i, I exactly really enjoyed that yeah. i almost didn't say anything but i know you need to you, it's that's right it's it's like special wine right everyone's well, got wine wine, wine or and grape bread. juice it's jesus though so you start with water and it might end okay. up as wine it's, you don't yeah. know there you go <laughs> And for those that can't see, I'm totally blushing in embarrassment. I feel like I really should know what communion is. I feel like this is totally fine. Like, do you think we could really go around and describe everything that's in a a, a Seder plate? No. 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 (laughs) But, but, you know, I I am in the minority and I feel like, you know, I I know a lot about the majority. I really should know about, you know, because Jews do the same thing, right? We all take Kiddush, right? We, We bless over grapes, whether that's wine or grape juice. And we do the same thing over bread. It's it's not a form of a deity, um, either with transubstantiation or not. Um, but See, it's there's still a that... big Christian word. You're good. <laughs> yeah. that's pretty good. I redeemed myself. <laughs> it took me a long time to learn what that word meant. So. Did you figure it um, out? I'm still working on that one. Uh, sometimes now. Okay, good. Uh, uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, I had to learn about it because of blood libels that happened in France in the Middle Ages. Oh, yeah. But, mm. um, <sighs> yeah. Lovely yeah. parts of our history. Yeah. <laughs> but but back to. Back yeah. To you were saying. Now. <laughs> I was trying to before I embarrassed myself. <laughs> whatever, whatever rituals like really mean something to us. I think those are important. And as clergy, there might be a lot of those. But I I think also maybe the tension that Zach and I feel is not the same tension that non-pulpit clergy feel in terms of religious rituals, right? Like it doesn't feel the same. Like I we don't we're not going around breaking challah bread together. We're not. Um, no, we've never used the same kiddush cup. Thank God. Um, that's just germs. No matter what season you're in. Um, but like we're not we're not raising our glass with each other around a circle and and sharing cookies like we're not doing that, and I miss that. But my people don't. My people <laughs> aren't missing that particular piece. They're not missing that we light the candles together and sing it. I'm missing it. They're missing the cookie during the schmooze hour. They're missing going to the gym and seeing their friends there. They're missing sitting down in the pew and going, now which page are we on and helping the person next to you going, oh, the book goes the other way. Don't you remember? Um, They're missing the rituals of community, not necessarily Mm. the rituals of religion, but religion provided them that community. And I think that for whatever we're leading, whether you're a teacher, a professor, a scientist, a clergy person, whatever, whatever it is, the rituals that are important to us are not necessarily the rituals that are important to the people we are leading them in. Hmm. See, I I like that a lot. And And to my mind, it gets to this sort of like when we started with this idea of translate or transliterate, right? Like. What's important to me is is not which one you choose. It's the trans at the beginning of it, which usually we talk about as like a like a thorough change, right? A, a, like something that was one thing before and now different. But like trans as a prefix also indicates like to pass through, right? To transit, right? So this idea to me, like what what I think is interesting and like what I hear you saying um, in terms of like pulpit clergy, Rachel, that I, I think translates to a lot of different ritualistic communities, right? Is this issue of like, how is it that the things that we have done that are so critical to how we make meaning, how do those pass through a digital format 
without losing that way of making meaning. And to come back and chastise Zach, this is why one should never say just a fucking symbol. It's always more than that. Please don't. Please don't blurt that out later. You cannot just say just a symbol because the ritual is a set of symbols. They're the most important things that we do. And when we say just a symbol, we give up on what it means to be human. So as far as I'm concerned, you've called us all subhuman today. And that's what I would like people to take away from from Zach's comment. I would like to say that... When I say just a symbol, I don't mean to take your highfalutin ideas and rub it down in the mud. Nobody can see this, but Zach just did a hair flip as he was talking. With my pandemic Like an aggressive hair flip against Adam. Aggressive hair flip. This was getting to be pretty good. What I mean to say. Did you get your gummy bears in? I just want to make sure. I should have. I should have. Is that it is just. So now you got me flustered. (laughs) (laughs) I don't buy into the distinction between sacred and profane quite as much as, uh, as, as some others, other others would, because saying that it's just a symbol doesn't, doesn't downplay it as a symbol. It lifts everything up to be at the same level. So the, uh, the Oreo is the same as the wafer because of the, the the meaning that is imbued into it, because the the sacredness is imbued in every single aspect of our lives if we allow it to be there. And so for to to in order to take away that 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 dividing line, that that great veil that that separates the sacred and the profane, I think in 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 calling it just a symbol i am i am leveling the playing field democratizing uh, ritual as it were and uh it's cool you can you you can say that you know at at the end of the day i'm some sort of like hierarchical maniac i'm okay with that i would call you a maniac but i don't know if i call you hierarchical (laughs) no i i actually think we're actually like actually a lot closer because i I think the things that you're saying are actually what I would would 100% agree with. And and where we'd probably start to divide a little is that I wouldn't call the Oreo the symbol, right? And what's going on there. Like the entire ritual act is symbolic. And the Oreo, the wafer, the thing that you choose, choosing to practice um, communion digitally versus in person, those aren't the things in my mind that matter so much. So it's not that it's just a symbol. It's that the symbol is the actual entire act itself. The elements by which it's composed okay. are certainly movable. Oh, yeah. Okay. Then, yes. And so See, that's where, I, like, I, I actually think we're, like, pretty close, but I wanted to I fall most in line anyway. with the Anabaptists <laughs> in my interpretation of sacrament. So there's, like, the You really might have to define a couple church. of those terms. I'm going to unpack that a little bit. <laughs> Thanks. So... There are some in the Christian church who would say that the the bread and wine is literally transformed into mm-hmm. the body and blood of Christ. Then there were those kind of a, a another, I don't want to say step lower, but we use these terms of high and low in church, who would say that Christ is present within the elements of it. And so the elements are still important and still special in that. I believe, along with the the Anabaptists, you know, the, the Mennonites and all, all those fun peace-loving people, that Christ is present in the act of doing it and in the community involved in doing it, uh, more so than in the elements itself. That the elements are, you can switch them out and mix and match as you like. That it's the act of the intentionality, the act of doing it together in which Christ is, is present and meaning is made. And we can do that somewhat online. We're still missing pieces of that and i think there's there's room for us to collectively grieve the the parts of our ritual that we're missing while at the same time being thankful that we haven't lost all of it and that um, maybe this will help us to really believe the fact that that the sacred imbues all things if you allow it well I would be remiss not to reference one of my favorite uh, readings on ritual, 
Um, but I've been so confused and worked up by this conversation about transliteration versus translation that um, I forgot that I don't actually really think about ritual in those terms usually, and that normally I uh, I feel very compelled by the book is called Ritual and Its Consequences, and it is by Adam Seligman, Robert Weller, Michael Pewitt, and Bennett Simon is one of my favorite readings on ritual. And um, they draw on all kinds of theorists. There's so many ways to describe ritual. Even like the five of us today have like barely scratched the surface and we've mm-hmm. already gotten in so many fights about it. But uh, I I love the way of thinking about ritual as a um, subjunctive space that is set apart from sincere realms of thought and action. And I'm going to unpack what that means. Um, but I, ritual, I think, is something that like, creates order for us. We, we can talk about like what pieces uh, are missing from uh, communion or, you know, from like Seder whenever we do these things over Zoom. But I think what's really important about all of those rituals is that we, there is a bracketed time and space. And the space, of course, is now our living rooms for the most part. But you can still have uh, dedicated spaces in your living room to do these things. Uh, a bracketed out time and space to participate in these things. And I think the details of what those rituals look like is still important and still meaningful. But the core of it is that those participating in those rituals um, is creating uh, the world as if. So we participate in communion, not because I think that literally like this Oreo is going to, you know, do whatever. Like it's not the Oreo doesn't make me Christian or not Christian. The Oreo doesn't make me part of this church community or not part of the church community. It's not it's it's something that I'm using to connect to a, a, a group of people that I'm not physically present with. But I use my Oreo and coffee as if we are together, as if what we're doing is, um, you know, meaningful in this particular way. And it's, it's not, I don't normally like wake up every morning and have an Oreo and coffee thinking about like the, the body and blood of Christ. <laughs> um, it's, it's a special moment in time <laughs> that means something and it creates order um, in my week. Like I do that on, you know, this Sunday at this time and any, and it's not just religious rituals, but any sort of ritual is creating order and harmony, like imposing that onto the chaos of our, uh, like unmarked times and spaces when we're just like doing other life things. And, um, that's how, that's how, uh, those scholars talk about it in, the, the book ritual and its consequences. And I just find that really compelling. And I know that there are like it, its own set of issues about like what that can mean, but I, that's normally how I think about like what ritual is, because I think that's the more foundational question that we're talking about today is like, what is ritual? <laughs> and our, our answer to that question decides how we will respond to um, the issues of translation and transliteration and meaning and in many ways, we'll define this series that we are recording as we talk about education and just our communal lives together and the way that we raise our children and all of these different topics in our digital presence. They're all in some ways rituals, right? In the way that you've defined it, that making, how did you put it? Setting, making the space out of the chaos. Imposing order on chaos? Imposing I, order I on don't know. chaos. What I, <laughs> I feel that deep in my bones right now. I also want to say that I appreciate the fact that you rejected my premise of looking at this linguistically and then brought us back around to, to the talking about the word subjective. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Which is totally a literal uh, uh, linguistic word. But it's better than transliteration and translation. (laughs) 
This has been episode 38 of the Down the Wormhole podcast. A big thanks to all our supporters on patreon.com slash down the wormhole podcast and all you who are still listening to podcasts even without a daily commute. This past week, we launched a new Facebook group so you can keep having this conversation throughout the week and hopefully build some new and interesting connections between all of you as well. You can just search Facebook for Down the Wormhole Conversations and feel free to join the fun. Next week, we're going to talk more about ritual itself. Poor Kendra had a ton of notes prepared for this episode, so we decided to dedicate a whole hour to it. We'll talk about psychology, history, and neuroscience, and hopefully shed further light on a lot of the topics that we were just only able to touch on today, which, you know, we kind of touched on a lot of topics today. So if you only remember one thing, remember. It's cool. You can you, you can say that, you know, at, at the end of the day, I'm some sort of like hierarchical maniac. I'm okay with that. <laughs>